and we're going to be in the book of Genesis, Genesis chapter 2. We're going back to the beginning, uh, quite literally. Um, But before I do that, what I love to do is just I want us to really posture ourselves and embody an attitude of worship and listening and prayer to receive from God. So if you will, take both your feet, put them firmly on the ground. I'd encourage you, take your hands and... um, and put them like this, like I do, just as an act of receptivity to all that God is going to have for us. And just take a couple of deep breaths at your own pace. Father, in your presence today, we come. Lord, we want to hear a word from you. And so I pray that we would have the ears to do so and the heart to receive those words. Transform us from the inside out. In Jesus' name. So the title of today's message is Tend to Your Garden. Tend to Your Garden. Has anybody here ever gardened before? Show of hands. All right. Um, If you maybe think you haven't gardened like on a maximum large scale, what about gardening? Just a little house plant. Yeah. Yeah, Brandon. All right. Some of you have done that too or just that. Um, So you all kind of have a little bit of experience with that, whether you have a green thumb or not. Uh, whether you allow plants to grow well or you absolutely decimate the population of the greenery in your house or in your yard, um, that's okay. I'm not about to judge you for it, and I'm not here to give you tips on how to plant. Um, but just a little bit of my experience and my wife's experience is since we've moved here um, in the front of the parsonage on either side of the front steps, uh, we have taken to planting um, many different kinds of flowers. Um, in our three years of being here. Um, And every year at the start of spring when we're ready to plant, we have to go and we have to weed those beds out. And my gosh, those evil demonic weeds that just spread and sprawl out and get their roots in everywhere so that when you pick up one side, it just like unravels like a thread from a shirt and there's more roots leading to other weeds. And most of them just aren't easy to get up. And you know, you got to get those weeds from the roots. Otherwise, they just grow back instantly. So if you're ripping the green off the top, a day later, you're already starting to see shoots coming up and then leaves coming up. So you've really got to go down to the root if you've done any kind of weeding. Anyway, we've done this for, what, three springs now, having been here for three springs. And um, we've weeded and we plant flowers. And we're never really happy with the flowers that we chose based on the selection of spring flowers. Um, and so once we're in the heat of summer around mid-June, we rip all of it up and we decide to plant other flowers that we prefer, um, which isn't exactly wise, but hey, we have fun doing it. Um, but what we noticed, especially this time around, was when we got to that unplanned second batch of planting flowers in summertime, um, we hadn't stayed on top of the weeds. Mm-hmm. And it had overgrown the beds as if we had never touched it again. And 
it took a lot of work. Um, in fact, uh, my parents came to help us with some work a couple weeks ago, and my mother was, God bless her, more than willing to help uh, my wife do a lot of the weeding while my father and I were doing other outdoor work, and um, it went by a lot faster, wouldn't you say, Evie, when you had help of another person to do it in that moment? Um, and now I'm trying to uh, get in a rhythm of weeding little by little and then saying, hey, Evie, let's go out on a Saturday and just weed and stay on top of it because 30 minutes is better than five hours on a Saturday of grueling work. Um, but it's a lot of work and it's a lot of upkeep to garden. Um, and it's just a fun experience to, to think about if you've ever done it on a small scale or a larger scale. And when we look in the book of Genesis, we have a story of a garden, and a gardener, and somebody who plants, and somebody who raises up workers to continue to cultivate, and to weed, and to fertilize, and to bring growth to the garden. That's the first story that we see in scripture with God and humanity. Um, so in Genesis chapter 2, starting in the fourth verse, um, we're going to break this down uh, piecemeal and just do a little section by section. So starting in verses 4 through 7, it says this. This is the account of the heavens and the earth when they were created. When the Lord God made the earth and the heavens. Now, no shrub had yet appeared on the earth and no plant had yet sprung up. For the Lord God had not sent rain on the earth and there was no one to work the ground. But streams came up from the earth and watered the whole surface of the ground. Then the Lord God formed a man from the dust of the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life. And the man became a living being. So just to point out in case you noticed or might come back and notice later, you're like, wait, I thought the beginning of the creation account was in the beginning God created the heavens and the earth and the earth was formless and there was nothing in it. And then he created the, the lights and the stars and the luminaries and the expanse and the waters. That's correct, but that's in Genesis chapter 1. Here in Genesis chapter 2, starting in the fourth verse, this latter half of the fourth verse, we see the account of Genesis, let me put it for you this way, zoomed in. It's not a different account. It's a focused account. Whereas the other one was a broad, detailed, this happened, this happened, this happened, this happened, this happened, covering all the bases. Chapter 2, it zooms in in a very personal, specific, detailed manner, especially surrounding humanity. So let's get into the zoomed in account a little bit. Um, I'm going to break down just some words to, to show you in these first three verses. Uh, something that might not be the most applicable, but it's quite profound and it's encouraging. Um, so the first word that I want to point out is it says, now no shrub had yet appeared on the earth and no plant had yet sprung up. So let's go through some of the Hebrew here. For fun, and I'll, and I'll make it easy, and I'll, I'll, I'll keep it simple. The Hebrew word here for shrub conveys the idea of wild growth that would rise up. It's this very literal understanding of imagery of something on a flat plane that rises up. It's not something that falls down. It's not something that comes at you from the sides. It comes from a flat plane, and it rises up, as shrubs do. Now, it goes on, and it details the fact that there was no water upon the earth at this point. But even if there was, 
it would not be enough in and of itself to produce specifically fruit. Vegetation would start to grow, but it would be wild vegetation. It would be unhindered in how it grows in every direction. And as you might have done in gardening before, you will see that if you don't have things organized and planted in particular spacing out of your perennials or your annuals or your tomatoes or your zucchinis or whatever it is that you like to plant, um, they will eventually actually overcrowd each other and choke themselves out. I planted, against my wife's will, six lavender plants. And you're supposed to like, I don't even remember how much you're supposed to say, two feet, two feet at least. I put them within six inches of each other. I was like, I want this thing to be a huge bush. And I knew she was probably right, but I was like, no, I'm doing it anyway. It's starting to die. <laughs> I, and I'm pretty depressed about it, so I got to uproot them and space them out right now. So there needs to be some hand guiding the work of the growth. So no shrub had yet sprung up, and there was no water upon the earth. Two necessary ingredients are missing for the vegetation, for the fruitfulness of the earth to grow and to be sustained. Water and working hands. Water and working hands. It's not there yet. Okay, but as we read, waters rise up as the shrubs are hoping to rise up from the ground. So notice it doesn't say that rain fell upon the earth, but that streams rose up from the earth as God ordained it to be so. And then, so now we have the water rising up from the ground, and then from the ground, from the dust, from the idea of nothingness. It's actually a substance, dust, but it's, what is dust? It's, it's really, it doesn't have much meaning or personality or it's not really an organism as we would understand other vegetation. It's just, it's dust. It's what? It's nothing. From that dust, God forms man. From the ground, God raises up man and forms him from that dust. And then he breathes into man, and man lives. So, so here's, here's the point. Here, we see a picture of God bringing about life and purpose from lowliness and nothingness. I love the imagery used here. There's no shrub on the ground to rise up. There's no waters on the ground to rise up. There's no hands to cultivate that which would rise up. And then... God doesn't send rain down. God says, from out of the ground, water rises. And then from the dust of the ground, man is formed and rises up. And then with the water and with the working hands, guess what rises up? Vegetation. Life is rising in this scene. God literally raises humanity to life from nothingness and lowliness. God brings water about from that same nothingness. And then God brings vegetation from all of that work. And now you have this lowliness, nothingness, rising up into life. 
and beauty. This is the imagery that we're getting here in these first few verses of chapter 2, and, and that's just that first point. That I said it might not be too practical, but it's incredibly important for you to understand this. God gives life. God gives life. That's just what we see by zooming in at this already zoomed-in portion of the creation account. So let's keep reading. Verse 8. Now the Lord God had planted a garden in the east, in Eden, and there he put the man he had formed. The Lord God made all kinds of trees grow out of the ground, trees that were pleasing to the eye and good for food. In the middle of the garden, in the middle of the garden were the tree of life, oh, that's weird, were the tree of life and the tree of knowledge of good and evil. A river watering the garden flowed from Eden. From there, it was separated into four headwaters. The name of the first was Pishon. It winds through the entire land of Havilah, where there is gold. The gold of that land is good. Aromatic resin and onyx are also there. The name of the second river is the Gihon. It winds through the entire land of Cush. The name of the third river is the Tigris. It runs along the east side of Asher. And the fourth river is the Euphrates. Now, I was tempted to just breeze past this because I'm thinking, oh, it's just detail about rivers. And then I thought, no, th there's got to be something else happening here. Why would this have been included in this particular zoomed-in account of creation? Um, if you think about the Roman Empire in the ancient Near Eastern world, uh, the Roman Empire was described as something that the sun would never set on. Because no matter where you were in the expanse of the Roman Empire that spanned over four continents in its height, in its power, no matter where you were, the sun was always out. It was always rising. So if it was setting in a western part of the empire, it was rising in an eastern part of the empire. It was so vast in its footprint over the ancient eastern world. So it was mighty, it was great, it was the world superpower of the time. There was another saying that was said about the Roman Empire. It was this, all roads lead to Rome. All roads lead to Rome. Now, whether that was literal or not, you get the point that this empire was great. And you could always find your way to it, and from it came commerce, came trade, came authority, came politics, came destruction, came, you name it. It came from there. It was the center of the known world at the time. It was the heart of it. That's the picture of Eden here. From Eden came a river. And from that river, life came. And beauty. It talked about that this great gold and this aromatic resin and this onyx. So quite literally, this beautiful sight to behold of precious jewels and gold and even a smell that came from it. I don't know, anybody in Tin Falls always get a whiff of that horrible, whatever it is, sewage, or, or is it the landfill, or the garbage, whatever it is. I don't know, but I walk out, and that is not the smell that I would imagine smelling from Eden at this time. It's, it's beautiful. It's aromatic. And from the Garden of Eden, this river splitting off in all directions of the known world gives life and gives beauty, and gives abundance. So the point is, all life springs up from Eden as its source. Right here is what I'm getting at. I'm not 
I'm again making a theological claim. I'm saying based on what we just read, life comes from Eden according to this biblical account. And within this garden, it's described that many trees that are pleasing to the eye and good for food are nourished and cultivated and grow. There's also the tree of life and the tree of knowledge of good and evil. We're not going to talk too much about that today. We can spend another discussion on that at some point in the future. Um, but the tree of life, we would understand it as prolonging life. Think about the uh, fountain of youth, Ponce de Leon, fountain of youth. Um, that's this idea right here that humanity, Adam and Eve, will consume of this fruit and they will never grow old. It's not that they're eternal, one fruit, good to go. But you eat of this fruit, you sustain young life and health and fertility. And then you have the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. The one represents life. This represents knowledge of good and evil. Something that at this point in creation, only God had. Only God understood the difference between the two. Man here is presented as innocent, blissfully unaware and ignorant of this. But still within the heart of Eden, you have a great power to sustain life itself and a great knowledge to understand the difference between good and evil. So just get this picture of greatness, life emanating from it out to the rest of the world and at its source, that which preserves life and that which understands the difference between good and evil, a great knowledge. It's all here in the Garden of Eden. Revelation chapter 22, verses 1 and 2, describe a future event that will come about for Christians in the new heaven and the new earth, but for all creation. Then the angel showed me the river of water of life as clear as crystal flowing from the throne of God and of the Lamb. Down the middle of the great street of the city, on each side of the river stood a tree of life, bearing 12 crops of fruit, yielding its fruit every month. And the leaves of the tree are for the healing of the nations. So if we go from the beginning to the end of Scripture, Genesis to Revelation, we see these two themes collide and we get this imagery of a garden that represents the dwelling place or the very sanctuary of God. Eden in Genesis is God's throne room on earth. It's his sanctuary. It's where his presence abides. It's in this place where God is that all life flows from within, with him as its source. This is where God chose to place us. Interesting. Not outside. Not on the outskirts. Not in some faraway other garden that was also nice that he built up. It's at the heart of his creation with life and power and sustenance and beauty that God places Adam. So what's the purpose of this garden? I mean, if we really think about God, now we get into trying to play with theology. Does God need this garden? No. 
Um, this is what makes the Yahwistic or Israelite or Jewish and Christian God so unique from ancient Mesopotamian and Akkadian and Canaanite and Philistine gods. Because whenever gods of those mythologies would create, including humanity, according to their stories of creation, they would always create beings and places because they needed them. They needed worship, otherwise their life force would drain. Or they needed provision from the people, so we're going to make slaves to serve us and worship us. None of that is in Yahwistic theology. God, Jehovah, Jesus, he doesn't need anything. This creation is a sheer act of his loving kindness for us, to us. So God creates this garden where he abides in, and does he need it? No. Does he need to eat of the tree of life? No. Does he need to bathe in the waters of the Tigris and the Euphrates and the Pisha? No. He doesn't need any of that. So why would he do this? From this garden springs water for growth, trees with fruit to eat that God doesn't need. God created this space for us. What a profound reality to think about, that God created this for us and placed this in the heart of us. Let me keep reading, verse 15. The Lord God took the man and put him in the garden of Eden to work. Underline that. He put him in the garden to work and to take care of it. And the Lord God commanded the man, you are free to eat from any tree in the garden, but you must not eat from the tree of knowledge of good and evil, for when you eat of it, you will certainly die. Now again, I told you I am not going to contend with the question of why would God ever do that? If he loved us, and that's a big question, and I honor that question, I'm not here to answer that today. We could talk about that one-on-one afterwards, or I can preach another message on it in the future. It's not today. I don't want us to get hung up on that because I don't believe that's the intent of the author behind the story for us to get caught up in why would God if we get caught up in that we're missing the bigger picture of oh my goodness look at what God gave us and we just start nitpicking on one little detail that we think is unfair and if we're there then we've missed all of what we don't deserve that God has given us so God talks about this, and I want to focus on that phrase, to work. God placed Adam in the Garden of Eden to work, to cultivate the land. So the the Hebrew there, let's get into a little bit more Hebrew, carries this idea of agricultural work, so gardening or farming, but specifically it has this tone of sacredness. It's not just having fun in a garden. There's this holiness to this act conveyed in the Hebrew that when Adam cultivates and farms the land, allowing and providing for a helpful place to grow, it's sacred. It's set apart. It's holy. So there's a priestly undertone to this when we think about priests in the Old Testament that were a part of upholding the Mosaic law. They would be in the sanctuary, the temple of God, and they would work through all of the commandments and they would make particular sacrifices and bake certain breads and burn certain grains and 
construct wood upon an altar that they were to keep burning all the time, that it would never go out, and they would wear particular garments, and then they would lead the people in all of these different processions and processes to worship God. The same idea is present here where we have a sanctuary, the place where the presence of God dwells, Eden, and a priest that's here to do the work in the presence of God. So the priestly work here is this idea of preserving what has been finished and finishing what is still unfinished. Bring, ooh, we might lose lights. Fun. Finishing the unfinished, helping bring about the growth that is yet to take place and cultivating for growth. So gardening here is holy. Yeah, to all you gardeners. Yes, to all of you at-home weekend warrior potting planter people, or both or all. It's holy. At least here it is. So Adam is tending to this holy sanctuary of God and working the land. He's functioning as a priest would in the temple. But now I ask the question, why work the land? Well, you have to. What's the point? Can't God magically do something so that Adam doesn't have to lift a finger? Why? Why, why would God make it so that he gives a responsibility to humankind to continue to steward or preserve what is already finished, but also to finish the unfinished and to cultivate the growth? Why does he give Adam such responsibility? Now, remember what Jesus said about the Sabbath in the New Testament? Remember his disciples, and he walk out in the fields, and he's going to pick heads of grain because they're hungry, but it's Sabbath, and that's an action, and you're not supposed to do that. And the Pharisees come to him and say, what are your disciples doing? You ought to teach them better than that. They're not to pick any heads of grain. And Jesus, in short, says this. Hey, guys, um, Sabbath was made for man. Not man for the Sabbath. So remember, the Garden of Eden wasn't made for God. He didn't need it, but he gave it for us. And his presence resides in there for us. And the work that he's commissioned Adam to do is for Adam. Not for his glory. Let me be very clear. Not for his own accolade. Not for his own bolstered pride, but it's for life. Yes. Remember, God is bringing life from lowliness and nothingness. So God gives humanity purpose. Purpose. I know this is a word that loves to be used a lot now, and so you might be tired of it. But right here, we can't avoid the fact that God and giving Adam responsibility to cultivate, to preserve, and to finish his purpose. He hardwired us for it. Um, so let, let, let me summarize now what God is doing. Just as a reminder, maybe to counteract, maybe that little, that little devil in your head or whatever it is. That's, yeah, but I want to know about why God would allow the tree of knowledge of good and evil to exist and why is all that. Okay, let me, let me, let me just... Recap for you. God makes man from nothing. 
gives him life. Then he gives him the perfect job in the perfect location, and he gets eternal youth. How does it not get any better than that? That sounds like a pretty good life to me. No bureaucracy, no politics, no backaches, no beast things, I don't care, no arthritis, no vomiting because of food poisoning, because that tree ain't going to make me sick. It gives me eternal youth. That's a pretty good story, if you ask me, and it's a good setup. Um, So when we live in our God-given purpose, here's the deal. What a holy thing to do. What a priestly thing to do. And not like you got the little collar on and your cap. Like, I just want to be priestly, holy, in service of the Almighty God. And it's giving you more life. You're living in that life that God has given you. So let's keep reading. Verse 18. The Lord God said, it is not good for man to be alone. So pause. In spite of all this provision and blessing that God has given, God never meant for your purpose to be fulfilled alone. Okay, so God said, it's not good for man to be alone. I will make a helper suitable for him. And all the ladies are getting angry right now, so just buckle up, stay with me. Um, Now the Lord God had formed out of the ground all the wild animals and all the birds in the sky. He brought them to the man to see what he would name them, and whatever the man called each of the living creature, that was its name. So the man gave names to all the livestock, the birds in the sky, and all the wild animals. But for Adam, no suitable helper was found. So the Lord God caused the man to fall into a deep sleep. And while he was sleeping, he took one of the man's ribs and then closed up the place with flesh. Then the Lord God made a woman from the rib he had taken out of the man, and he brought her to the man. And the man said, this is now bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. This is a love song happening right here. This is not, uh, all right, this is now bone of my bone and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman, for she was taken out of man. That is why a man leaves his father and mother and is united to his wife, and they become one flesh. Adam and his wife were both naked, and they felt no shame. All right, so there's a lot there to finish up this account. But the first thing I want to come back to is, what was not good about this part of the creation narrative? What did it say was not good? For man to be alone. Loneliness. It's not good. This is straight from God's word. Loneliness, no good. My, my, my jaju and my babshi, my Polish grandparents, they would always say, no good, no good, like that. If the food wasn't good, no good. And my grandfather was doing some sort of construction project. I remember helping him lay a lot of uh, paver stones once, and he goes, no good. And he ripped them all off and put some new ones on. Uh, no good. It, it's no good. It's not complete. It's not right the way that it is. As a builder, as an architect, as a gardener, no good. Man is alone. He's got his purpose. He's got eternal life. He's got the best job. He's got perfect health. He's killing it at work, naming all the animals. And God says, it's no good. He's alone. Now, um, remember, why would God say this is no good? Um, because you may maybe think, oh, did God make a mistake? 
I didn't make a mistake. Um, do you remember in chapter one when it describes how God made man? Do you remember that phrase? We made man in our own image. Our plural own image. In our likeness, man was created. Who's the our? Who's the we here? This is why a lot of people give you a little bit of apologetics. Muslims and atheists especially love to point out that there's no trinity in the Bible. Also, uh, uh, Jews also love to point this out. Uh, I'm not condemning them. I'm just giving you a little bit of apologetics, a little bit of defense of your faith. The word trinity is nowhere found explicitly in scripture, but it's very easy to see the implicit nature of Father, Son, Holy Spirit all the way back in the beginning. Who's the we? The people who thematically keep coming up in the Bible. Father, Son, Holy Spirit. Right here we have a Trinitarian theology in the text. We are to make them in our image. Understand, within the very Godhead, there is community. They are in perfect union with each other, and they are in constant community with each other. Wearing the shirt was a little bit, it was not planned, but unity. This is the Trinity. They're in perfect harmony with each other. They don't need anything from without. Father, Son, Holy Spirit. They work with each other. They complement each other. They have different roles in the advent of their divinity in human history at different points and at different times. From creation to the cross to the Holy Spirit at Pentecost and, and a lot of different ways in between. They're in perfect unity with each other. And it's in that image that humanity is created. And so it's not that God made a mistake in creating Adam as he was. It's that it's not finished yet. And I love how God goes about creating it. It says that just like Adam, all of the other animals and the birds, they were formed from the dust. But not woman. Woman is so unique in this moment. Woman isn't a separate entity from Adam in this moment. She's not another pile of dust that God forms together and spits on and forms like clay and then breathes into and becomes life. No, woman, the one creature of all creation that comes from another of creation. Out of the side of Adam is woman formed. And that is why it is said a man will leave his father and mother and be united to his wife and the two will become one flesh. What a beautiful thing. What a holy thing. What a godly thing. What a life-giving thing. God says it's incomplete. It's not finished yet. And there's only one way for me to finish this creative work. So from Adam, Eve comes. Um, now, for the word that really kind of uh, sets some ladies off. Um, he needs a helper. He needs a helper. Um, I remember as a kid, my father would always tell us to come out and help him, help him, um, fix the vehicles. Uh, whatever work we had to do on the vehicles, we would do. And I would have to go out there, and I would be excited. Like, oh, man, I wonder, I wonder if I'm going to get a use the ratchet today, or if I'm going to be able to use the impact wrench today, or I wonder what I'm going to be able to do today. And I'll be real. I love my dad, but that's one area that I wish he had done differently, is that he never let me do it myself. I was the helper. I was the dude who was to hold the flashlight. Three hours later, <gasps> oh, 
you're not shining the light where it needs to go. I know, I can't stand this. I get a headlamp. Oh. <laughs> or go get me this tool. I was the gopher. I was the helper gopher. Um, I, I kind of am going to assume for a lot of people, uh, a lot of maybe even ladies, they kind of see that in the text as what the helper implies, just the little errand girl that runs around and does the little loose end things. That is not at all what the text says. And it's not just my desire to make you ladies think more of yourselves. I'm going to give you what the text says. Go to the Hebrew, and what's fascinating is this word for helper in the Hebrew is used to describe one person above all else countlessly throughout the whole, te- whole Old Testament. This word helper is used to describe one other person abundantly throughout the Old Testament, more than anybody else it's used for. You want to guess who that is? Nope, close. God. God. It's always used prevalently in describing God's correlation or his work to help Israel. Same word. Israel cannot do it without God. Man cannot do it without women. It's not a gopher. It's a godly way of working with and for and on behalf of someone. And if anything, you can probably stretch this a little bit more. It's not right to do, but we can reverse the roles. God's one who has authority over Israel. Ladies, you can take this too far and say, we got the authority over you guys. Don't go that far. Don't go that far. That's a little bit of a misuse. You ain't God. But man, you have power, ladies. God gave you such power to compliment if you're married, your husband, or maybe one day your husband. What a beautiful picture. And ladies, what, what an incredible, distinct privilege you have as created by God in a way that no other part of creation has been created and given a responsibility and a purpose the likes of which no other creation has. Truly, what a unique gift. All right. um, So moving on. Verse 20. No, I already talked about that. Let me transliterate. Uh, or not, let me translate verse 22 in a slightly different way. I'm going to read for you in the NIV the way that I already read it. Verse 22 says this, Then the Lord God made a woman from the rib he had taken out of the man, and he brought her to the man. Um, A more literal translation reflecting the Hebrew is this, um, Then the Lord God built up the side he had taken from the man for the purpose of making a woman. There's more, if, if you caught it, a little bit more of, again, a uniqueness and a purpose behind it. The first way kind of does lead you to believe that, okay, you're just used for man and, all right, this way it's, no, from man, you're built up. Again, unlike no other part of creation has been built up, while the rest come from dust, ladies, you're built up from humanity, from man, from Adam. What a beautiful thing it is. To be united as man and woman, as we were created to be. Um, so ultimately, in verse 24, um, 
That is why a man leaves his father and mother and is united to his wife and the two become one flesh. A man seeks a woman, plain and simple, because a part of him is missing. This is not a message for you who are single to feel pressured or to feel bad that you have to go and get married. That's not what this message is. It's not. But I do need to honor the uniqueness of our creation as being man and woman and being united in such a holy way. We were created to seek that out. Paul says in the New Testament, in the book of Corinthians, that there is a gift that we would use the common terminology to say celibacy. It's a gift to be celibate. Paul says not all should seek that because it's a very unique gift. And for those that don't have that gift, seek marriage. And I did say marriage. I'm going to be real about that, and I'm going to stand on that. It does you no good to just hook up. It does you no good to move in with each other. But that's a sermon for another day about commitment and covenant and marriage. So what? What do we take away from all this? You probably took a lot of notes and have a lot of things swirling through your minds. Let me just give you a bunch. Let me shotgun a bunch for you to kind of recap and summarize it up. Number one, there is no life apart from God. What this story shows us, it's from God, from the lowliness and the nothingness that all life rises up. And apart from him, none of this happens. There is none of this. There is no us. So there is no life apart from God. Number two, our work slash labor is not separate from serving God. I think this is very important. Because I think because of the toilsome nature of work, whether you love your job and you want to do your job to the day you die, or you hate your job and you curse your job every day that you wake up on the way to work, if she gives me one more responsibility, I'm going to lose it. If he tells me to work overtime, I'm going to lose it. Okay. Regardless of where you stand with your job, your work, your labor is not separate from serving God. Your life is not to be lived, I go to work, nine to five, whatever it is, and then when I'm done, I clock out, and then I come and I do God stuff. Then I come and I serve God. Then I come and, okay, you might not be a gardener like Adam was, but work was given to us by God. You've been given purpose. It might not be what you went to school for. It might not be what you dreamed of doing. And it might not be what you're going to do for the rest of your life. But whatever work your hands find to do, do it as unto the Lord. Be faithful. We were created to work. Now, because of sin, work is harder. It says that you keep reading in Genesis. Because of the transgression of man, man's curse is that his work is going to be much more toilsome as he tills the ground and things won't grow like they once did. So our work is harder because of sin. There's no question to it. This is not telling you, you better love your work because God created you to work. I'm not saying that. You don't necessarily have to love it. You don't have to like it or you can't. But let your work bring glory to God. And don't separate the two. Let how you work be influenced by the reality that I'm living and the purpose that God created me for. Work. I'm not talking about this specific job. Um, here's another point. The third point, 
working to preserve, complete, and cultivate growth in our lives is a holy act of worship to God as long as it's for him. As long as it's for him. What's the motivation behind the work? So you might latch on and agree and live out what I just said before. That our work is not separate from serving God. You might say, yep, I'm, I'm doing this work for the Lord. But somewhere along the way, you might deviate. We all do it. And it's all about just getting back on track. What's the motivation behind your work? There are a lot of reasons and rationales behind why we work and the motivation, the catalyst that keeps us getting up every morning and making that commute and doing that work. Going around those people that we might not want to be around. Breaking our backs in a way that is not going to help us as we get older. What's the motivation behind that work? Is it to get rich? Money's not a bad thing, but is that your motivation? I, if God's not in that, then it's probably not holy. Is it just to send your kids to, I don't know, Harvard? Wonderful thing to aspire to do, parents. Wonderful thing, and I don't downplay that. But if that's the sole purpose, where's God in that? And I'm not giving you a specific way that you have to work for God. I'm just saying, where, where is God in it? I'm not telling you you got to come here and give money to the church, and that's the way. Do, do not hear what I'm not saying. I'm just saying, where, where's God in your heart of work? Is it worshipful to him? Is it holy and set apart as unto him? Is it for your kids so that your kids can know God more? Is it to get more money so that you can do whatever you want with it to help bless your kids or your family or your church or your community? I don't know. I don't care. But for the sake of glorifying God. But how you're working for his glory. All right. Two more. Number four. Our purpose cannot be carried out in isolation. God saw that man was alone doing all of his work. He was doing it well, and he was well paid for it. And it was a great place. He was in Eden, and he was alone, and it wasn't good. Um, I think this is one that a lot of us can really understand and a lot of us might be convicted by i know this is something that i've worked on a lot and i still got a lot of work to do in this um but a lot of times we want to go maverick and do things our own way for a whole host of different reasons sometimes we just prefer to be alone and that's not always a bad thing and a lot of times it is a bad thing um sometimes we're arrogant and we don't want others to get credit for the work that we're doing and so we shut others out that's also not helpful um sometimes we're just scared Sometimes we're afraid to trust because we've been hurt. But the very thing that you've been avoiding because it hurt you in the past is now the very thing that's hurting you in the present. Not being in community. So our purpose, it can't be carried out in isolation. God is not an isolated God, and God didn't create us in his image to be isolated. We're to be in community with each other. And this is a very broad application. I'm not focusing in on marriage like this text is. I'm broadening it for our own context and our own sakes. I am a champion of marriage, and I encourage everybody who is in a relationship with someone to prayerfully consider that with the Lord. 
but for all of us, marriage or not, simply put, relationships. We need them. And man, COVID hurt that. COVID really, really hurt that. Um, I have really seen in talking with my wife that it seems like people are truly, we've always been self-centered. It's part of our sinful fallen nature. But since COVID, man, it's like it's really all about us and our immediate circle more than it ever has been. Commitment is at an all-time low. Care for others is at an all-time low. Service is at an all-time low. Um, Patience is at an all-time low. Um, We've got to fight for it. We were created for it. Um, And so we've got some work to do. And so that's why I invite you next Sunday, especially when we do these, we're calling them love feasts. Uh, When we do that, spend some time. Have a conversation with one person you know or you don't know. Have two conversations, one with somebody you know and one with somebody you don't know. Um, relationships take work. They're not always easy in the beginning, but man, when you work and, and feed them, they're life-giving. We were created for it. And lastly, it's important for us to recognize where the presence of God now dwells. Garden of Eden, presence of God dwells. God takes Adam, places him there, creates Eve, and that's where they are at this point in the story, living the good life in the presence of God where all life emanates from. So question, do we have to go and find Eden in order to experience this? The long lost garden of Eden that nobody knows where it is and if it even still exists today or if God destroyed it or hides it from our eyes. Do we need to go back there? No. Do we need to create our own little garden literally that we go and we spend some time in? Uh, in our backyard, I mean, sounds great and might be very therapeutic for you, but no, that's not where God dwells. Um, God doesn't dwell in a building. His presence can sure show up. God doesn't dwell in a garden. So just for those that say, I don't need to go to church, I worship God in nature. Yeah, no, um, it's neither. You can say God is not confined to a building. Absolutely. God's also not confined to nature. Where's the one place that the New Testament says God's presence dwells always? Us. Outside of the throne room in heaven, us. We are where God's presence tabernacles. We are the tabernacle of the presence of God as a church body. And now the presence of God dwells within each and every single one of us. So very practically, going back to these gardening imagery and farming and agriculture and working and tilling and tending to the land cultivating it finishing it tending to your garden your life where god dwells it's not just a portion of your day it's not just a little time that you carve out to say i'm going to go out and just do a little bit of this you are the garden God dwells in you. So it's not just a portion of your day that you've got to feed it or water it or cultivate it or weed it. It's an attitude that inhabits every part of your day, every part of your life, everywhere that you go, every thought that you think, every word that you say, every action that you make, every part about who you are needs to recognize this. This is the dwelling place of God. And from his presence within life comes. And am I 
living in the purpose that God has given me. I've experienced life and beauty and wholeness. Tend to your gardens, church, and experience the life of God in your life. Jesus is calling to you. The Holy Spirit is groaning from within you, and the word of God, even from outside, is being spoken and cutting deep into the recesses of your heart and your core and your very being to jumpstart you, to remind you, to call you, to recognize he that is within you is greater than he that is within this world. Amen. Amen. Would you stand with me on your feet today? What an awesome God that we serve. What a good God that we serve. Father, right now, we just declare how good you are as a life-giving God that raises up life from nothing, from the lowliest places of this realm. You have raised up life, and you have breathed into us life. Father, you have given us purpose, and you have given us the means to carry out that purpose in community as you have done and modeled for us within the community of the Godhead. So Lord, today I pray that as we leave this place, we would recognize how privileged we are, uniquely created we are, provisioned we are, purposed we are. Jesus, I pray that those that have struggled and those that are wandering and those that are in need to come back to you, the source, the well of life. Would you just meet them right where they're at, right now? Remind them who you are. Give them fresh life, I pray. And it's in the name of Jesus that we all agreed and said, amen, amen, amen. God bless you. Be well. I hope to see you all Wednesday night as we gather together for this movie. We will have snacks and concessions. Um, so we'll see you all when we see you.